What I'm about to tell you cannot be repeated to anyone. Because if you do, I assure you, you will die. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Decoding TV, a podcast about television. I'm David Chen. I'm Christian Spicer. Welcome to the show. On today's episode of Decoding TV, we are going to be covering the HBO original series, The Last of Us, episode one. You can find more episodes of this podcast at podcast.decodingtv.com. Email us at decodingtv at gmail.com and find us on TikTok, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at decodingtv. Now, I mentioned we're going to be covering The Last of Us episode one. And that is because we are recording this episode from the past. Uh, This episode of the podcast, we're actually recording it in December. uh, And we uh, were able to get access to the screeners early and uh, we we're very fortunate to, to be able to have that access. But what that also means is that at this point, I don't know what the episode title is yet. Christian, are you, did you see the episode title anywhere in your pilot? <laughs> so we don't know the episode information, but also in addition to that, um, there may have been stuff that happens between now and when the episode is released on January 15th marketing materials and uh, maybe one of the cast members gets in a bar fight. Like we have no idea (laughs) stuff that happens in January. So we don't refer to those events. It is because we are recording this episode uh, in December for scheduling purposes. Um, So that's one thing I just want to start with. If it sounds like, wait a second, why there was actually a nuclear war in real life. Why did these guys talk about it? It's because we're recording it in December. Okay. Uh, The second thing I want to mention is that this podcast, Decoding TV, generally covers shows from the perspective of a show watcher. What that means is that we will not spoil anything from future week's episodes of the show. That means anything, in this case, from the video game of The Last of Us Part 1, as well as from the next time on preview. I will acknowledge that both Christian Spicer and I have played The Last of Us video game, and Christian Spicer is uh, the host of the official Last of Us podcast. Uh, But we are going to work really hard to avoid spoilers for the show. Uh, So if you are just watching the show and want to get into this world through this podcast and through the show itself, uh, then you are in safe hands. The other thing I want to mention, though, is that having watched the first episode in advance of our conversation today, Christian, uh, you know, The Last of Us, in our as we discussed in our preview episode on Decoding TV, is one of the best-reviewed, best-selling video games of all time. It has a rich cinematic story. And I was really curious, like, what an HBO original series would add to this story. And having watched the first episode, uh, they, they make many changes from the video game. And I think they're really interesting changes to discuss. So we will be discussing those changes some of those changes on this episode of the podcast but we will also be releasing bonus episodes that will have full spoilers that you can listen to and um the first one will be available for free but in general you can access all bonus episodes at decodingtv.com with a paid subscription so uh decodingtv.com is uh a paid subscription that gives you ad-free episodes, early access episodes, and uh, bonus episodes. It's also how we fund this podcast. So consider becoming a member at DecodingTV.com. You'll get some cool bonuses. Again, that's at DecodingTV.com. Huge thanks to all of our members there for making this podcast possible. Okay. All that preamble aside, Christian Spicer. Wow. Uh, I have been anticipating the show for many months. Finally had a chance to watch it this week. You had a chance to watch it as well. 
and so let's start with our overall thoughts on episode one of The Last of Us on HBO. What did you think of the episode? Yeah, I, I mean, to say that this has been one of my most anticipated you know, media events uh, would still probably be understating it. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a Last of Us cup next to me. You mentioned doing, you know, the official show for the game. There's an Ellie statue somewhere behind me. Um, and the pedigree of talent associated with this show. It's not like it was announced and it was, you know, starring your neighbor written by that person. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's too bad. Those are my favorite ones. Starring <laughs> that person. I mean, they haven't released anything bad yet you know Mm -hmm. um so the uh the hype or the anticipation was there for me in a big way and as we talked about on um the first the the discussion announcement of this show episode this being an hbo show also carried in my eyes further weight behind it and i was not disappointed i mean this felt like an HBO show. It didn't feel like an also ran, you know, like, yeah, it's HBO, but it's a video game. You know, it felt like it got the full weight of network resources in terms of making a beautiful cinematic small screen. Cause on a TV, even though most of us have big screens at, in our homes now event, it felt like an event prestige television and that's what made me the happiest um, initially. And I can get into some some nits and some stuff that I thought was interesting in terms of the pilot. But before I go there, I'm curious kind of what your, you know, first impressions, takeaways were from this pilot episode. I really liked it. I thought it was very good. And uh, as, I, as I mentioned, I was fascinated by some of the decisions that they made in terms of changing it from the video game. And I actually was like impressed by a lot of the changes. I was like, Oh wow. Like, you know, so uh, there's a couple of changes we'll talk about either here or in the bonus episode where I'm like, Hmm, like, I wonder why they changed. That doesn't seem necessary to change. And then like, by the end of the episode, I'm like, Oh, like that (laughs) makes it so much better the way they did it. So I, I, I thought it was great. You know, the one niggling question in the back of my head was like, uh, I wonder what a complete casual, like, casual person who's never played the last of us like what their experience of this show is unfortunately that's generally what we try to give you on decoding tv i have already played the game and i loved it um the the one question i have is like how different is this than you know the walking dead or any other post-apocalyptic show um and i don't know that it is that different because the last of us was probably largely inspired by uh a lot of other shows like or movies like 28 days later or things of that nature, you know, the road um, and certain road, other yeah. media that came before it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but I thought it was really well done. I was getting emotional, you know, at certain parts that are supposed to be emotional and um, production design wise, like it's really solid. Like it feels like they invested a lot of money into the show and it's all on screen. Um and the cast is overall pretty great. You know, they made some interesting decisions casting wise. And, and uh, I like all these characters. I find them all relatable. There are a couple of elements that I found to be a little video gamey <laughs> that we can get into, you know, in, a, in not a great way. But overall, I thought it was a very strong pilot and I really enjoyed it. I, I thought not only was it an enjoyable hour and 15 or hour and 20 minutes of television, but it does great honor to the video game personally. That's what I thought. So enjoying yeah. it so far, enjoying it so far. Yeah. And I, I you mentioned the, um, 
Oh man, my mind just went blank. That's so funny. Um, what some of the changes, and I, I do think um, many of them were smart in terms of you know adapting this for TV. And I, you know, I look forward to that conversation. But your question too about like how is this different to the casual viewer, perhaps uh, from other um, zombie or you know the world is now destroyed style, right? Um, media and i had that note later kind of in a in a discussion as the show unfolded but i think it's an interesting topic here as well because i think what elevated the last of us video game above mm-hmm. other zombie the world has ended video games which had certainly existed pre the last of us as well was its production value mm-hmm. the the way that they did mocap for the characters and they had the actors acting in the same room together and they brought this cinematic approach to a video game that you know they had done before in Uncharted, but they hadn't done, no one had done a story like this before in games. And that really elevated it. And so now my question is like, yeah, how do you bring that to a show when other shows have, this isn't the first high production value apocalyptic show. <laughs> and so like, how do you stay relevant in a world where what you've done has been done in many ways? And I, and I think the way they approached it was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think there's also uh, in, in the video game there are s- several other things that make it made it stood apart. Like, and I guess this is a variation on what you're saying, right? But the the a- voice acting uh, and the writing was excellent, and also the set pieces were excellent. You know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of action set pieces in the game, and I am curious, like, how action packed the uh, the TV show is going to be. So, um, anyway, let's get into this episode. Last of Us episode one begins in 1968 with a cold open. There is a talk show interview um, where these doctors are talking about the possibility of a pandemic. Who would have thought that was ever something that we might ever experience? Um, But one of the doctors uh, talks about his concern, not for a viral pandemic like the flu, but instead he's concerned with fungus. Talks about what fungus can do. It can take over bodies, control and alter minds. Um, Like the fungus that can take over and control an ant and slowly kill the ant from within. Uh, and he says, by the way, maybe if the planet got a couple degrees hotter, uh, this could allow the fungus to take over everyone. And by the way, there's no cure. Um, it's not something you can treat like with a bacterial infection or a virus. Um, you are just SOL completely out of luck. Uh, and then smash cut to opening credits, basically. This was interesting to me because I, 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 I'm just going to be honest, like, in terms of a exposition device to like tell the audience what's going on, pretty eff- pretty efficient. Yes. Um, but also weird and kind of played out as a concept, in my opinion. Like there's mm-hmm. been many, many um, you know, post-apocalyptic movies that open with a news broadcast of some kind or a talk show of some kind. Uh I'm just gonna throw out one example. I am legend, Will Smith. You know, like that opened with like a news broadcast where they're talking about the stuff that actually ends up going wrong during the course of the movie. And it's like, um, this is just weird. I, Cause this is a show invention. I don't think this was in the, in the video game and it's like takes place in 1968. So it's like, you know, I don't think we're ever going to see these characters. Maybe we'll see these characters. I don't know. But uh, I just thought it was a weird way to open given that it is kind of so different in terms of tone and, visual aesthetic than like anything else we see in this episode. And I assume for much of the rest of the show, Christian, what do you think of this opening? 
Yeah, I thought it was really effective, actually. And I think it serves as a bridge for Chernobyl fans to it felt very Craig Mazin mm-hmm. in terms of that aesthetic of mm-hmm. what was featured in Chernobyl, which took place, you know, a long time ago. And so it kind of, I think, bridges that gap and lets viewers come into a world and like, oh, this is another show like that. And you're you're saying all- this this uh you're saying The Last of Us takes place in the Chernobyl universe. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I mean, which, at by this way, point, which by the way is our universe. I just want to point that out as well. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a scary universe that yeah. we are always in. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I also think it was very effective in doing some heavy lifting for setting up the show uh, that wasn't required for the video game. When the first video game came out, we had not gone through COVID. And so it didn't exist in this world that we see ourselves in now. And so I think, you know, some of the themes in this pilot episode without that setup, perhaps would feel a little emptier. And I thought it was a really effective way to kind of look at the audience and say, you're living through one of these. And that's the one that this scientist isn't worried about. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the one yeah. you should be worried about. And it, it, I think it did a really good job of putting this existential dread into mm-hmm. our real world as we watch this now fictional world, because unlike Chernobyl, this is fiction, whereas Chernobyl is this recounting of true events. So I think it was effective in making that dread in this TV show feel real. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't disagree and and you're right like it does delineate between like the pandemic we went through and what horrors might be in the show and it made me <laughs> want to like look it up I'm, I'm like I need to do some research like is this actually a possible thing in real life um but I I, I do welcome I, to Dave's just, rabbit hole the new yes. podcast on uh, decoding <laughs> in, indeed it left me with a lot of questions basically I'm like why did they choose to reveal the information this way I'm like are we going to see these characters later like because um they could have conveyed this information in other ways during the course of the rest of the episode. So I'm just like, I'm just curious, like why they did it this way. I don't, I don't know. Maybe we'll find out, or maybe we're going to get to the end and it's like, Nope, it was just this one thing, but they just have it take place. Like, you know, here's just one sample question. Why have it take place decades earlier? Like, why not have it be a recent thing? You know, I'm just so curious, like, like all the decisions that went into it. So hopefully we'll find out later as the show goes on, but um, I agree it was efficient. I just thought it was a little weird. It raised a lot of questions for me that I want to have answered. So well, anyway. The last point on this, I think it does a good job of saying this isn't the video game. Mm. Right out of the gate. You know, it's not the video game. You never saw this before. <laughs> uh, here <laughs> yeah. we go. Yeah, indeed. Well, we smash cut to credits uh, and it does use the theme song from the game. And a, a lot of the music seems to be either inspired by or taken directly from the game. Um, uh, Gustavo Santolaya, who wrote some of the beautiful music for the game, like it, that DNA is definitely um, in this show. And Academy so, Award winner, he's uh, yeah, yeah, incredible, and definitely leans on to the stuff he's created and using his actual score, but also yeah, with new elements that feel like they fit. Yeah, yeah, um, agreed. And I thought the uh, I thought the opening sort of credits were like pretty cool looking, you know, some CG fungus and stuff like that. So um, some good stuff, good stuff. Uh, Okay. So we started with 1968. The credits occur. Then it's 2003. We're in uh, still the past, but future from also, also decades ago. (laughs) Yeah. Still decades ago. 
last decades, but still decades ago. What was a little weird to me was they said September 26th, 2003. And then they didn't give a date for any of the other parts of the show. Like, I think when you're in 20 years later, I don't think they give a date as to when you are there. But anyway, um, we meet Sarah, who is Joel's daughter. And we also meet Joel, uh, played by Pedro Pascal. Sarah is played by Nico Parker. Uh, it's Joel's birthday, and we see that Sarah takes care of Joel. Joel takes care of Sarah. Um, she's cooking him breakfast. We meet their brother, uh, sorry, Joel's brother, Tommy, who's played by uh, Gabriel Luna. And uh, they eat breakfast together, and then Tommy and Joel head off for a construction project and promises to be home. Joel promises to be home by 9 p.m. with a cake for his birthday. Uh, and on the radio, we hear some vague references to trouble in Jakarta. They talk about like, whether Jakarta is a country or not. Um, and it, it honestly reminded me, Christian, of like the early days of coronavirus when you're like, oh, there's this virus in China and you hear about it in the news. It's like, oh, it's a very distant idea um, that, of course, would become extremely relevant very soon. Uh, so then Sarah leaves and goes to school and we see her at school in class and um, she takes a city bus to get Joel's watch fixed. But then like she gets kicked out of the watch repair shop because one of the people is... Uh, you know, I, I think the the watch owner, watch shop owner's sister or wife is really upset about um, the stuff that's happening outside. We see emergency vehicles, uh, and then uh, Sarah is kicked out and goes home, and and kind of like uh, this is the early part where we're setting up the creeping dread and troubles that are going to come to dominate this episode and probably the rest of the show. Christian, what do you find about? What do you think about these opening sequences where we're introduced to Sarah and Joel and, and these scenes of domesticity and, and kind of the encroaching danger? So I'm curious if that date becomes relevant again, um, because very often TV shows give us something. And when something is on screen for that long, my inclination is always to think what happens uh September 26, 2042, you know, or whatever, right? Like, why why yeah. is that date on the screen in the tv show is it anything more than just a reference uh i'm i'm very curious if they play up to that again and how significant dates come right, because so far, they, don't, they don't give any other dates other than that one so yeah. right and we've, we've had a couple of years and you know does any of that this isn't a numberology show i don't think but i'm curious to see how that stuff plays out um i really liked how quickly things uh, the tension ratchets up, as you mentioned, like that Jakarta talking over the radio. Um, I don't know if you did, but after I watched the pilot the first time, I went back to it and tried to really slow that down and see mm-hmm. if I could listen because they start talking over it away. Like you mentioned, so many of us do. The The morning yeah. show did a great job with that, too, of like early coronavirus stuff and people not paying attention to it. Um, and I thought it was fascinating the, how real that felt and how mundane and then the, that scene at the the watch shop where, you know, one, uh, I think it's like a ambulance or a police car goes by. Then you hear more and you hear the sounds of helicopters and stuff overhead. And it just feels like that part in the song where the orchestra is building and you know there's about to be a drop. And I think it overlaid that with a lot of mundane tasks really, really well. Making breakfast, getting um, eggshell in the egg, not having ingredients for this still going to work. Um, I think it really played those two um, different feelings really well. Yeah. And I I hate to keep comparing this to real life 
experiences, but we, we all, we all just went through a pandemic together, you know, like, so I, I feel the need to relate it to my actual experiences, but it reminded me of in the early days of the pandemic, um, people had differing levels of opinions on how dangerous things were. So I remember, uh, my wife needed to go get her car fixed at the dealership. And I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll go take it in. I'll go take it in. She's like, no, don't go. Don't go to the dealership. I'm like, really? Like, is that, you know, is that really going to be a thing? You know, we had no idea it was airborne at the time. We had no idea like how it spread. And I was like, really? What's the big deal? And it reminded me of like that scene in the watch shop when that woman is like, you got a GTFO, Sarah, like you need to get out of here. Um, and the guy's like, what's the big deal? What's going, you know, like um, that in the early stages, it's like chaos. And, and uh, you know, as we have unfortunately learned in real life, in the late stages, it can be chaos as well in terms of people disagreeing about how safe things are. So uh, I, I like that kind of sen- that chaotic sense that that's captured in, in the early scenes. Um, okay, so Sarah goes home and she meets with uh, a neighbor named Connie. Uh, and I, I, I think an older, like, older woman, older not woman, quite yeah. grandparent age, but older than, than her dad. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like a next door neighbor that she's kind with. Right. 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 And except for the fact that, uh, Connie likes raisin cookies, not chocolate chip, <laughs> really, just really nice touch. Um, and like, there's an amazing scene where, so I couldn't. I, I couldn't figure out, was Connie the younger woman that was there or was she the old infirm woman in the chair? Connie um, is the younger woman, like yeah. again, probably in her sixties. And then yeah. her mother is kind of in a vegetative state there in a, in a wheelchair. And, and Connie, um, you know, very much doesn't seem concerned, right? Sarah has a little bit of concern from seeing the emergency vehicles and, and the scene that happened to her at the watch shop. And I love Connie's line of like um, three nails plus one cross equals four given. Like it doesn't matter. I'm praying. Let's go make yep. some raisin cookies. Yep. You know, God bless. Yep. And it mm-hmm. felt so just dismissive in a way that makes you want to roll your eyes. But also Sarah couldn't like fight and yell and because she didn't know what was going on. And so here you have this parental or older than parental neighbor being like, oh, it's fine, hon. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's hard to reckon with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's an amazing scene, in my opinion, where like you see Connie's mom in the background out of focus and she starts like changing. She starts like transforming, like something's wrong with her. There's a really creepy scene where like the dog looks at her. Um, this is all just like really, in, in my opinion, well executed horror genre material. Like it's something's not quite right. And the way they're revealing it is very vague uh, and very mysterious, but in my opinion, very effective. So I, I loved all that stuff. Like it's really, uh, you're scared. You're scared, right? And we hadn't seen that older woman move in any way, shape, or form. There's the earlier scene yeah. where Connie's husband is feeding her a biscuit um, and she can't open her mouth. And Connie even says like, I don't know why I talked to her. She's deaf. She doesn't, you know, she's, and then you see her again, blurred behind Sarah kind of moving and it, yeah it's it's unsettling in all the right ways can i go off on a on a wild side tangent rant here for a moment christian <laughs> this is i'll keep it i'll keep it short i'll keep it short um but i do feel like old people are like one of the last groups that it's okay to depict in like a horrifying fashion you know 
uh, in TV and movies. Like, I think I, I became acutely aware of this when I watched like The Visit, the M. Night Shyamalan movie, uh, who, by the way, has dealt with old people in uh, several of his recent films, including Old. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and just like there, there's a, you know, there's many, a lot of horror films and other things, um, that depict old people in like a scary way. And I'm just sensitive to it, you know, cause we're all, we're all going to be old one day. Uh, and the way they depict this, uh, older couple next door is like not very flattering, even before, even before she transforms into a zombie. Uh, so anyway, um, just a side, just a side rant. I, I, I hope we have more positive depictions of older people in general uh, I, in our, I think in it's our media. Sh- you know, like shorthand for we associate usually older people with being kind and gentle or not a threat, right? Because of their mm-hmm. frail. And so I think it's just easy shorthand juxtaposition for you thought it was this, but it's this. It's like a, a yeah. bunny rabbit that becomes a demon or something. It's but just there's like a scene to... where like they want to give him the biscuit and like her mouth is full of like biscuit chunks mm-hmm. and she's yeah. meant to look, she's made to look disgusting. And it's like, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know if that's really necessary. I, it's, I, I understand the storytelling purpose is like, oh, she could barely even eat biscuits. Now she's like murdering dudes. You know, right. like look at yeah. how horrifying it is. But it's just like, you know, it, it's just a mini rant that many people, as with many of my rants on decoding TV, people might find nonsensical and um, right into how much you disagree with me at decodingtv@gmail.com. Okay. <laughs> um, so Sarah goes home and Joel comes home and. Uh, they're about to settle in and have a nice uh, uh, father-daughter bonding time. She gives him the watch that she has repaired. Uh, and it seems to be very meaningful to him because he wouldn't have gone to repair it himself because he's a busy dude. Uh, and then Sarah also gives him a DVD that she got, which I believe is called um, uh, Curtis and the Viper 2. This is a fictional action movie uh that is from the world of the game i believe um so you cannot go and buy curtis and the viper 2 i've already tried uh but anyway <laughs> she falls asleep while they're watching it together and then joel gets a call from tommy that he got into a barroom brawl and uh he needs to go bail him out of jail so uh he kind of takes her to her bed and then she falls asleep and then she wakes up to the sound of helicopter noises and that's when stuff really starts to hit the fan this whole section when she's coming out of her house, she goes next door, she discovers the body. Uh, Joel comes home and all this stuff. I thought it was all very effective. Like the helicopter noise, the sound design of the helicopters. I thought this is all really just well done. Uh, any thoughts on this section when she's kind of realizing what's going on? Yeah, I thought it was effective in giving her a reason to go over and a reason to come outside, right? There's always the thing in the horror movie of like, run! There's that Geico commercial that those actors have probably bought 10 homes on that gets shown every Halloween of them making stupid decisions in a horror movie. Like, let's get in the running car. No, go hide behind the chainsaws. Yay! Every year, those actors are getting, they're feasting Mm -hmm. on those royalties. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think they do a good job here in The Last of Us of giving Sarah a reason to come outside. And to investigate with the neighbor's dog. And, you know, she's a good person. She has a relationship with this family. She's going to bring the dog home, see what's going on. Mm, And then everything kind of builds on top of that to create a really unnerving situation, but one that I could find myself in. And so often in horror movies, it's, I think you talked about it on uh, White Lotus, where it's like, I would have left the hotel (laughs) by now. Not horror, but like, 
I would not do what that character does. But here I could <laughs> see myself very easily doing what Sarah did, like maybe bringing a baseball bat with me like that would help. You know, hundred percent, hundred percent. And the reveal of uh, Connie's mom, like with the kind of fungus growing out of her mouth is like really scary. And and they linger on it in, in an appropriate way. And um, then Joel comes, you know, to the rescue, driving his pickup truck and just knocks that person the f out uh it is really effective you know one of the most effective things about this whole sequence too is like how much stuff is not in focus you know Mm -hmm. how much stuff is in the background barely out of focus uh you see them driving away and one of the neighbors like joel what are you doing and then you know tries to help inside inside. yeah, yeah and then and then like she gets overtaken but you like don't even like that story is not even one you're going to be exposed to on the show as far as we know um i will say that uh uh i think a lot of these shots are like lifted directly from the video game if i recall correctly so it's not like the show conceived of them but they executed them quite well i thought so um yeah any thoughts on kind of this any other thoughts on the opening parts of this uh this realization that something is horribly wrong with society i mean i think they did a great job setting themselves apart from the game one in the spending the time with Sarah at the watch shop and the neighbor. And then the game, we have the moment of just the neighbor at the door. Um, and this feels much more believable in a way that I think really works for again, passive media and having Joel and and Tommy come in at the, just the right time. Mm -hmm. It feels, you know, a little coincidence can get you into a scene, but it's not supposed to ever get you out of a scene, but it feels believable in terms of them returning at the time in which they did and them also being armed with additional information that Sarah does not have because they were just in county lockup. And Tommy talks about he already had an experience with a hyper aggressive person at a bar. And then imagine what the prison was like. And as this thing is spreading. So I really like how it, it doesn't feel like the, I don't know what's happening, but trust me when I say this, it's like, no, 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 Sarah, they have a little bit more information than you. Listen to them and get the heck out of here. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, it was really wild to see Joel come in on that truck of his, and it, it does turn out to be really reliable. But I suspect that he might have had a better time using one of the vehicles from our sponsor, Nissan. This episode of Decoding TV is brought to you by Nissan as a pioneer in the electric vehicle space. Nissan is always looking for ways to deliver new, meaningful technologies to EV owners. After all, Nissan's been making EVs since 1947, and their EVs have now traveled 8 billion miles by Nissan Leaf owners since 2010. 8 billion miles. That's the equivalent of driving to the Pluto and back, which, by the way, is something that you probably want to do if you were involved in the events of what happened in the first episode of The Last of Us. Um, Get out of here. Get out of this planet. Do you think that's electrifying? One of their EVs trekked all the way to the North Pole, and Nissan even tests their EV technology on the Formula E racetrack. But Nissan knows that you don't get an EV for just the E. You get a Nissan EV because it makes you feel electric, because it sparks your imagination. It ignites something within you. It pins you to your seat, and it takes your breath away. At least that's what Nissan thinks about when designing their EVs like the Nissan Aria and the Nissan Leaf. It's about creating a thrilling design that electrifies its customers. I love Nissan's focus on creating a thrilling drive and an electrifying life. Uh, In today's world, it's so important to look around you, to pay attention, to look for all the tiny ways that life can electrify you. Like in the case of the characters of The Last of Us, where I'm just going to say an impending zombie apocalypse is really going to electrify them 
and get them to leave town as quickly as possible. Um, so if you're looking for the kind of electricity that is your get up and go, consider Nissan EVs that electrify. All right, Christian, let's talk about what happens in the rest of this scene. I really liked the way a lot of this scene was shot. Um, in the truck, in the truck, because a lot of it is in one like long uh, continuous shots. Um, and it is this, uh, sequence, but also the whole show and the game itself and so on. Like they're all very reminiscent of children of men, in my opinion. Right. Um, in uh, another movie, by the way, in which they're traveling across the country to bring someone who is valuable in some way, uh, where there are long continuous shots inside of vehicles. So, uh, but I thought they were very well done here and it, you really get a sense of like how scary and frightening and unpredictable it is. And like anything could happen. Um, so yeah, I, I thought all the truck stuff going into town and stuff was great. There's also a very brief scene where there's a family on the side of the road that they like consider whether or not to pick up. And Joel's like, no, someone else is going to get them. Uh, and you kind of get some insight into how protective Joel is of his, family in that moment um but yeah any other thoughts on this whole like action sequence like there's a lot of stuff going on the plane crashing going into town people running after them and then obviously the inevitable conclusion that we'll discuss but uh any other thoughts on this whole sequence what i like about what i like about the sequence a lot is how it shows how fast this thing seems to perhaps be spreading around the world i believe it was three or four planes that you see in distress maybe two certainly more than one that are uh, i'm led to believe have been overrun by you know grandmas you know whatever this thing is right these these enraged zombified people mm -hmm. and and these are big planes you know these are big commercial planes just coming down over austin instead of going at the airport and they're in distress and all wobbly and i think that shows with the jakar story earlier and then the watchmakers partner or sister talking about things happening with her family across the world. I think it does a really good job of environmental storytelling, so to speak, of showing how big this problem is in a way of showing, not telling. We don't have, you know, we don't cut back to the scientists. It's like, yes, I told you it would, you know, it's like you see the world <laughs> collapsing. And I think that's super effective. And I also mm -hmm. love the in the car moment. It reminded me of, you know, scenes in the Batman uh, and that car chase of how claustro, what it yeah. must feel like to be in a car in that situation versus yeah. watching it from afar. And I think they did a really good job of making us feel like we're in that situation where something horrible happens and it zooms past you. What was, oh my God. Yeah. And, and yeah. I like think you, that's like really you're barely, you, Like you're barely seeing what's actually happening because you just turned around at the right moment or you might've, you might've just missed it. The the plane stuff was wild, man. Like, because there's a scene, there's like a shot where like three huge jetliners like fly past a truck and yeah. like really low to the ground. And it's like, whoa, that is, I've never seen anything like that before. You're not used to seeing that stuff. Um, and, and so it looks I've, great it, too. Yeah, it, like, it looks, I imagine it good, yeah. they were not uh, dropping planes out of the sky IRL. Um, <laughs> so the well, this amazing they have here. This is an amazing really scene good. when like the plane crashes. And it explodes, right? And it's and I agree with you. They didn't drop a plane IRL, but the like the lighting looks really good. It looks like they actually blew something up. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it, it looks spectacular. The whole sequence looks spectacular, in my opinion. So, um, really unfolding chaos that's like, just really terrifying. Uh, 
Uh, and then there is a chase sequence where, you know, Joel, uh, Sarah is like injured uh, because I think a part of the plane hits the vehicle, right? Yeah, the vehicle's and, overturned. Her foot's kind of stuck in it. Yeah, and he has so to, like, she can't run around. anymore. She can't. She can't run anymore. Joel grabs her and starts running with her. Uh, and then one of the zombie-like creatures, um, and I think later uh, there's a sign that indicates what these things are called, right? Like, um, but it, it's never spoken, right? But like, I think it's cordyceps is what they're called. Um, there's a we see a sign later uh, on the wall that we'll talk about, but. Um, I think they're called cordyceps, the, the things that are taken, humans that are taken over by this fungus. And we see one of them pursue Joel and we see this thing can freaking move, man. Like it is, it's not just running. It's like pouncing, you know, it's using all fours. Like it, whatever this fungus is doing, it's controlling humans in such a way that they have almost superhuman like abilities. They're from and, the Snyderverse of zombie mm-hmm, movies. They, mm-hmm. The uh, Dawn of the <laughs> Snyder Dawn of the Dead, right? Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. I thought the chase sequence was awesome when, you know, this thing, and the, what, you know, one advantage they don't have is like, they're not very precise. This thing's like crashing through things. It's not like super precise in its movements, um, but it does have brute force uh, at its disposal. So anyway, uh, they seem to be saved by a military personnel wearing like hazmat equipment. Um, but then the military personnel appears to get orders to exterminate uh, Joel and his daughter, Sarah. Uh, and they're about to do that. They get some shots off, I believe, when uh, Tommy shows up, saves them at the last minute, kills the military guy. But unfortunately, Sarah is killed in all the ensuing gunfire that occurs. This is a heartbreaking scene. Having played the game, I knew it was coming. But I still like kind of cried a little bit during, during the scene because the performance by Pedro Pascal is so raw here. I thought it was really effective. And also, what's really effective is the first half of this episode really makes it seem like Sarah's going to be the protagonist of the, of the show, right? Like you, uh, a lot of the opening scenes are told from her perspective. You go to school with her. You like she's getting dressed in the morning, getting ready in the morning, buying Joel her gift, like etc. Um, you think Sarah's going to be the protagonist, and then she's unceremoniously killed halfway through the episode. Uh, it's really effective storytelling. Obviously, it's from the game, but it's really well done here. Christian, what do you think of this very very critical scene? Yeah, I mean the moment where Joel is there holding her, and uh, I'm. I get, I have two daughters, uh, myself Mm -hmm. and, um, talking about this scene and watching it, it it wrecks me every time. And when he's holding her there and just says, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And it's like the helplessness in his voice alongside the realization of what's happening. Um, I don't want to say it wouldn't connect if you're not a father, but it it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to watch and it's not rushed. They stay on it. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not gratuitous violence. You know, it's not like a Sarah has like a gaping hole and that's what they're, mm-hmm. that's the trauma they're trying to show you. Yeah. It's the trauma of the human. And I think Tommy is so beautifully played here too. Um, 
in terms of recognizing Sarah's injury first and trying to be there for his brother. It is a, a beautiful scene in the midst of all this chaos that, you know, you can't imagine how someone comes back from that without being destroyed as a human being. Like that is a flashpoint in someone's life that will make yeah. them never the same, regardless of everything else that's just happened the prior, you know, 30 minutes of their day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the moments that I thought was most poignant was like when Joel, I think at one point he asks Tommy for help or, or he's trying to motion to Tommy and Tommy like looks at him and he's just like, Joel, like he knows it's over. Like he knows it's not, she's not going to survive this. And that is a heartbreaking moment too, of like, he, just his realization of what's going on and, and how he kind of gets there, not necessarily before, but like in a different way than Joel. It's a brutal, brutal scene. Um, and it's really well done. Really well done. So, And for me, I could have seen credits there. Mm-hmm. Like it, you wanted the episode s- to end right there. I mean, it, it hit heavy, right? I, I was like, time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, uh, and you you said this before we started recording too about how like uh, this felt like two episodes sewn together, and I I do agree with you to some degree, but I think that they needed to do it this way to tell you what the show was going to be. Like, it, it, if they only aired the first half of this episode and it ends with her dying, like you don't know what the show is going to be. I, I get to the end of this episode, I I have a sense of what the show is going to be, and that show matches the show that they're marketing. And so on, I see, you know, that's interesting. So, yeah. So, um, but I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint that it feels a little bit unwieldy with these two halves because we are introduced to a whole bunch of new characters in and the second half of the episode, you know, I'm guarded now, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm game of Thrones guarded fool me once all mm-hmm. that stuff. Like every character I meet, like I binged game of Thrones and I feel like I started, like I came into that show late. So no broad spoilers for it, but I feel like I started to see the themes of like, I've watched too much too fast. And now with how this sets up characters, it's like, well, I don't, I'm not going to care about that character because they already did me dirty <laughs> in the first 30 minutes. That's interesting. I have the total opposite. Re- I, have, I mean, I agree with you that killing off Sarah means the sh- like no one is safe. But I am very energized by that because um, sometimes you have the opposite problem. You know, I'm just going to throw this out there, Christian. Uh did you watch the Rings of Power, Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power? Some, not all. Well, there might be something that happens in that show that at first blush seems like a mass casualty event mm. in which no one dies. And then you're like, well, what is the point of any of this? You know, yeah. um, or, or very few people die. Let me put it that way. Like, um, so I like that the show like establishes stakes right up front. Like, hey, don't like any of these characters could die. Like this show is willing to go anywhere. And I like that. So, um, again, of course, all, all, this is all, all, all stuff that happens in the, uh, in the video game as well, but, um, uh, it's worth noting because it, the show is a different thing and maybe, maybe, the, and the show can and will, and already has made different creative decisions in the game. So, uh, anyway, we flash forward to 20 years later, 20 years later, uh, they're in Boston now it's 2023. And we see a child stumbling through the forest in the outskirts of Boston. Uh, 
people in the early days of the pandemic when they saw deer in the road uh, and other creatures inhabiting, you know, cities were like, nature is healing. Well, this is kind of, you know, nature has healed. <laughs> I wanted to make a joke when I saw Boston. I was like, hey, that's what Boston looks like today. Because um, <laughs> I'm from Boston. But yeah, it seems like uh, the outbreak or whatever has really done a, a number on major cities such as Boston. Um, so this uh, child goes over to this place that is labeled quarantine zone. And they bring this child inside and they tie them to a wheelchair. Now, uh, you thought it was a, it was a boy, right? I couldn't, I couldn't actually tell whether it was a boy or a girl. I don't, I don't remember if they speak or not. Um, I, I did assume, uh, you know, based on how they look to me that it was a, a male, a young male child, but yeah, I don't think they ever confirm, you know, one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so they are strapped down to a, a wheelchair and it's like, Hey, we're just, just keeping you safe. And I believe the uh, organization that is is running this whole place is called Fedra, right? It's a fictional organization, um, call, which is stands for the Federal Disaster Response Agency. So that's what Fedra is. And we see some signs on the wall that are very helpful. Uh, they say. Uh, signs of cordyceps infection are coughing, slurred speech, muscle spasms, and mood change. Like, so if you get infected and you show those signs, you might be, uh, you might have the cordyceps infection. And also, you will become fully infected at different rates depending on where the infection came from. So if it was on the neck, face, or head, it's five to 15 minutes. Torso, arm, shoulder, or hand, two to eight hours. And leg or foot, 12 to 24 hours. So uh, you basically, the lower down in your body you get bitten or whatever happens, uh, the slower it is. And you want to get bitten on the ankle because then you have like 24 hours to say goodbye to your loved ones, basically. <laughs> um, there's a great scene where this woman talks to a child and uh, they, the guards put a little machine to her, uh, to, I'm sorry, to their neck. And um, the machine has a red light kind of indicating that this person has been infected. Um, and she tells uh, the child that uh, they'll be okay, uh, and they give them a shot. But what they're actually doing, I think, is either sedating them or euthanizing them at that point. Um, it's it's a really effective scene, I thought. What did you think, Christian? Yeah, I think it it does a good job of showing one again. I think quickly showing how far the world has fallen in arguably a short amount of time. You know, twenty years. Not that long to have the world look vastly different than it did, where you you would assume that large sections of the city are uninhabited for it to be as nature healed um, mm -hmm. as, as it is. And I also think it shows both the humanity, but also the brutality of the world. We're here, this woman Fedra agent isn't cold and callous, and it clearly is still affecting her. And you have to imagine that she's done this several times. There are tears in her eyes. Um, or welling up in her eyes, I should say, but also she's not going to not do it. You know, the, the, they see a little scratch on the, on the child's knee and then the, the red light scan and they know what has to be done. And this is, this is now the world they live in. And also you see um, the technology looks kind of star Wars episode four, five, six, you know, it's like banged up lived in. They're not in a shiny Chrome, mm -hmm 
you know, yeah. uh, Hunger Games style room. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's effective in a lot of those ways. That's such a fascinating interpretation of of the Fedra agent's reaction. I, I didn't read that at all. Maybe, maybe I wasn't watching closely enough. I didn't see the tears. I, I thought it was kind of like a very efficient, mm. you know, uh, not not a cold, not necessarily. I didn't sense compassion there. Let me put that, put that way. I sense like, oh, this is, you know, here's another thing we got to do. Like, that's kind of what I sense. But, you know, I think the, the, um, the performance is open to interpretation. Maybe I read it wrong or maybe I didn't watch closely enough in that scene, but uh, I think the, the words she says too, like we're going to get you fed. We're going to get you all the toy. Like they have this child strapped down. They don't need to talk to it. It's not going to go anywhere. They could have mm-hmm. just, you know, one and done right. it. Yeah, sure. And I think she was trying to put it at ease. Maybe so there wouldn't be a struggle. Yeah. But, I, um, I didn't think it was cruel in any way. You know, I didn't think she was cruel in any way, but um, uh, but I think you're right that like there, there is a kind of full spectrum of Fedra agents in this episode that we see yes. you know? um, between this woman, between the people like hanging the people for leaving the quarantine zone and, and between the one that Joel is interacting with um, to trade. I think they're called cards is what the currency is in the future. Um, yeah. Uh, nice spectrum of, of who Fedra agents can really be. So uh, we are then go inside the Boston city limits and they're burning bodies. And this woman sees this child as a body that needs to be burned. Uh, and she's like, I can't do it. So she asks, mystery dude, it's Joel. And he kind of just dispassionately throws his body into the fire. And it's like, that's how you know uh, Joel DGAF anymore. You know, he's uh, <laughs> the death of Sarah has inexorably changed him into a guy who's okay burning children's bodies. Um, he gets, he kind of gets in line uh and it's clear that he's like looking for more work. He's willing to do dirty work. He's trying to kind of make as much money as he can. Um, we see various things about what it's like to live in the QZ curfew hours from 6 PM to 6 AM. People are being hanged. Uh, and Joel is dealing drugs to this Fedra guard uh, off to the side in this alley. Um, so yeah. Any thoughts on kind of the establishment of Boston as this place uh, in the early parts of the second half of this episode? This is the only part that, uh, not the only part, but a a the first time that kind of left me wanting a little bit, and I think it was for efficacy of storytelling. They didn't, but I am curious what, you know, what does is is there any infrastructure to the city other than Fedra or scraping by? Mm-hmm. Like, what's is there just uh, what's the John Q. Public or you know Joe the Plumber from whenever election cycle that was like what's mm-hmm. what's average Joe or average Sue doing? And I, I get the idea that the show is presenting there's uh, criminals and people hustling to get by, people just suffering, and then Fedra and mm-hmm. maybe that's that is all there is, but it's like really really oppressive uh, the world mm-hmm. they paint that people live in in, in 2023 boston it, yeah. it kind of shocked me at how oppressive it is like there's mm. no hope in those city walls it seems like yeah yeah and, and i think what your criticism is is like it doesn't necessarily feel like a fully fleshed out place it feels like um perhaps like broad ideas of what a place might be yeah um, of like what a post-apocalyptic you know living situation could be but it doesn't feel new right it doesn't feel like it's not the walking dead where they just found the school and they live there now it's like this is established and i guess this is people's routine um 
but it, it does feel like it's more to represent the idea of what that would be versus what it might actually be. Mm-hmm. We learn of a group called the Fireflies, which, according to Fedra, is kind of a terrorist organization. Later on, through some fairly clunky exposition, uh, we learn that what they are trying to do, the Fireflies, is they are in, quote, a war against a military dictatorship to restore freedom and democracy, end quote. Um, But it's clear that Fireflies have been uh, blowing things up and basically making things hard for Fedra agents. And the guard that Joel's speaking with says, hey, stay off the streets uh, because you don't know. People have itchy trigger fingers. You don't want to get caught up in the the shuffle. So at that point, we meet Tess. Uh, Tess is hanging out with someone named Robert. And we learn that Robert has, uh, has sold a truck battery to Tess, did not deliver the battery, sold the battery to someone else and then spent the money that Tess gave him. So he seems like a big asshole. Um, and not <laughs> only that, by. he's getting by in the QZ, Dave. He's mm-hmm. just getting by. And he does not want to let Tess go because it's like, if you tell Joel that I did this to you, Joel's going to kick my ass. And Tess is like, I'm going to tell him nothing about this. Just please let me out of here. Um, before he can actually agree to do that, a car bomb uh, explodes a Fedra vehicle, and then it's followed by like a what appears to be a Firefly sniper attack against Fedra agents. Tess somehow makes it out of there, but actually she she somehow somehow survives, but is taken into a Fedra lockup. Uh, we later learn. I don't think we ever see her in Fedra lockup, if I recall correctly. But um, you see her get taken into custody and then yeah. come out later, yeah. like some time later, twelve hours later, or whatever. We then meet a girl named Veronica who's chained to a radiator and she's being tested to see if she still has her wits about her. Um, like uh, being told to do tasks like count one through 10. Um, this person is played by Bella Ramsey. We later learn that her actual name is Ellie. So I'll call her Ellie from now on. Um, but anyway, we'll talk a little bit more about her later. Uh, so uh, what else happens this episode? Joel goes to a radio operator and this is cool scene where like there's this whole line of people that are like trying to communicate via radio and he goes in and gives cigarettes to the radio operator which is something that the uh fedra agent or fedra guard gave to him and it becomes clear that he's very upset because he hasn't heard from tommy in three weeks when he usually hears from tommy overnight so tommy's still alive at this period of time and joel's looking for him and he cares about him well, um, I don't know if Tommy's still alive. Oh, yeah, I yeah, yeah. That, I think that's the gist is Tommy was alive three weeks ago. Yeah, that's what I meant to say is like he he had survived the last 20 years is what I was trying to say. Yes. Oh, yes, um, yes, yes. Uh, and so he's trying to – Joel's trying to find him. But, yes, Tommy may not in fact have survived through the events of um, the last few weeks because apparently it's pretty dangerous out there. And we do learn that uh, in, in real time during the course of this episode. So um, I, I just really love this – idea you know you're talking about how like uh some of the stuff doesn't feel super well established in in the world and this is a thing that like oh that does make sense that people would communicate via radio um there'd be no more infrastructure anymore one of the things i really liked was joel gives the fedra guard the this bag of drugs and he's like i need that bag back yeah it's like it's like oh yeah because you can't just go to the store and buy a ziploc bag probably in this time of you know in this time in the future um, so I do like there's a lot of these little touches of like what would life in the post-apocalyptic future actually be like? Um, those are all pretty effective. Um, so 
anyway, uh, feel free to cut in if there's anything else you want to you want to talk about here. But Joel goes home, and he. Well, I guess, plans, I guess yeah. my only okay. note here, and we'll get to Ellie later, and maybe this is for the. I don't know if you know this guy's name's Jeff Kanata. Um, maybe the Veronica. <laughs> maybe Veronica would be effective for. Jeff Kanata's or a total casual viewer of the show, but that was a, a a moment that felt odd to me as Bella has been so advertised as Ellie mm. that I was like, why they called her Veronica? No, what, what, okay, what was the point? Like, what was the point? Of, but it's just to show. I think it's to show you that they may, they took great lengths to disguise her identity to disguise yeah. her identity. Um for reasons that are not yet clear to us really like we get some hint of like what their background is but um you know like why would marlene want to hide veronica slash ellie um and we we, there's still parts of the story we don't yet know from the show so uh anyway so joel goes home um we see that his watch is broken uh, it's probably broken some point in the last 20 years, but he still wears it. Um, and then Tess comes home and then they, they like wake up the next morning together and they talk about all the stuff that went down over the course of the last day, which is very <laughs> eventful. Um, so Tess wants to go and beat Robert up and get the battery and, you know, or, or get their money or whatever. And Joel wants to go find Tommy. Like that's his, his mission. Um, so, they set off to try to find Robert to to beat him up and uh, hopefully get this battery that he took and you know uh, or that he still has and and uh, and use it to to set out west. Uh, that plot line eventually intersects with the Fireflies and Marlene. So we meet the character of Marlene, uh, who is played by Merle Dandridge, and we learn that she is the head of the Boston chapter of the fireflies uh or she is called like kind of the Che guevara of boston and you kind of get a sense that they're like revolutionaries raging against the federal machine um i i thought all the casting in the episode was really strong christian like what what, what did you think of uh of durl as uh, i'm sorry merle as marlene but also like um you know all the other performances that we've been introduced to in the second half of this episode yeah, I agree. I think the casting is really strong. And it's also, you know, perhaps we'll talk about this more later as in terms of more differences from the game, but it's a much more diverse cast than mm-hmm. the game. Yeah. Yeah. And I think in kind of like my, my little critique earlier of the world not feeling as real, I think this casting feels more real. This feels like a lived in world where there are people of different body types, colors, gender, and you see it's not just a bunch of white dudes everywhere, you know, everywhere you look, uh, even between the Fedra guards, you see different sizes, yeah. shapes, color people. I think it's really effective. And I think the same is true of the Fireflies when we meet them. I think, you know, what we meet five or, or, or so there at the beginning, and it's they all look kind of like revolutionaries in terms of dress and, and stuff like that. And they're yeah. dirty and a little beat up, but it, it's not video game character white dude npc you know that you so often see in games to fill a room it looks like real people coming together to do a thing and you know everybody i think nailed their role um really really well and i think we've we've talked about sarah's story already but i think especially um sarah was so well played and then now meeting marlene she has this hint of humanity 
behind her, which I find fascinating, you know, kindness mm-hmm. in her eyes, but also clearly um, tough as nails when she needs to be. And I think an actor bringing both of those things to a role isn't always the easiest thing to do. And I think the way the character of Marlene carries those burdens in this pilot episode is, is really phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, it's worth noting that in the video game, Joel, Ellie, and Sarah are all white characters, right? And Tommy. Whereas, uh, and yeah, and Tommy. Whereas here, obviously, um, Pedro Pascal is uh, Chilean American. Um, and Sarah, I think, was uh, uh, black and also. Uh, you know, Bella Ramsey is white, but you know, it's it's a it's a much more diverse group of people overall uh, in the show. So uh, yeah, I'm 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 loving the cast so far. Christian, you know what a really efficient way of uh, filming an action scene is? <laughs> you film it after it's over. You film everything that's <laughs> happened after the action has already occurred. So. Daredevil uh, gave us the hallway scene and the mm-hmm. last of us gives us the post hallway, the post hallway <laughs> scene. Right. So, uh, I mean, we, we should point out that there is a conversation that Ellie and Marlene have, right. Where like, uh, there's a few things revealed in the, uh, Ellie Marlene dialogue. First of all, I think there's a character referred to called Riley, like, uh, w- which seems to resonate with Ellie for reasons we may find out later in the season, but he's like, it, you know, yeah. it feels like, someone saying to Joel, Sarah, you know, it, ha- it feels like someone's mm-hmm. touching a wound when yeah. this is referenced. And it's also Marlene's um, coming out, not in terms of, of sexuality, but Marlene's reveal to Ellie, which I thought mm-hmm. find interesting where like Ellie has been in Marlene's life for years, but Ellie hasn't known about Marlene until yeah. now. And I think that dynamic is fascinating. Also, like I'm your guardian angel, well, jerk, where were you the last 20 years of my life? Right. You know, right. like, why now? Why today? I think it's fair to say, you know, and we learn at the end of the episode, right, that Ellie has bite marks, but she is not, does not appear to be infected. And that this may be a reason why she is important, right? Um, so... That's why Marlene wants to take a bunch of the fireflies and travel west with her because, like, pr- presumably that's like part of why Ellie's important. Um, but you know, Marlene kind of communicates to Ellie, "Hey, like, you're really important. We, y- you are the key to potentially all of this. Like, we need to take you west." Um, strong children of men vibes, in my opinion. But anyway, uh, before they can set off on their amazing plan, like all the fireflies meeting together and go out there, uh, this this deal with Robert and the battery goes real south. Huge firefight. Lots of people die. Massive, massive gunfight. Like, it seems like, I, I don't know, at least half a dozen people were killed. Um, so it had to be like a massive action scene that we barely missed. And that's when Joel and Tess show up uh, and Marlene recruits them uh, to take Ellie out west to like a firefly station. Now, I actually thought that this was like fairly plausible. Like, because the question you're going to ask as a person watching this is like, why would Marlene trust these randos with this like extremely important mission? And it's because a, she knows that they're capable, which is something she indicates. Um, B, she doesn't really have that many options, you know, and C, their interests are temporarily aligned. Right. Uh, So I thought this was like a pretty neat sort of storytelling that it it all kind of made sense to me. Like uh, I don't think it quite plays out exactly this way in the video game. Christian, but uh, you know, what did you think of how these characters all intersecting 
and meeting and kind of Joel and Tess and Ellie kind of setting out on their own at this point. I, I really liked how this scene kind of balanced this idea of, you know, being brought into the world as a viewer, but also you're being brought into a world that already exists. The way Marlene and Joel interact with each other, they clearly have a prior relationship. Yeah, yeah. But again, there's not a 15 minute exposition of like, remember in 2014 <laughs> when we were stationed in, you know, it's just the way that Marlene acts around her, Joel and, and is aware of Tess, but doesn't have the same relationship with Tess that she had with Joel. And so you get a lot done without a lot being said in how these characters play this scene in the hallway. I think it's really efficient for setting up, um, you know, what's going to happen next. And I think they did a good job setting up why it's so important for Joel to go West as well to find Tommy you know, his brother, here's a, a man that we've seen in his life has a few people in his family. There was no partner. There was no Sarah's mom. And it was Sarah, Tommy, Joel, Sarah's gone 20 years later, Tommy might be gone too. You have the impression that Joel's going to do what he has to, to, um, to save him. And then you get this line of, uh, Joel to Marlene of you took my brother away from me or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Like, you corrupted him. You, you, you turned him against me. Oh man. I mean, I feel like I'm sitting down to eat there. Like that is fascinating. Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the blame that he's putting on this woman for this thing he has to go do, but now he's still going to help her because he knows, as you mentioned, their interests are aligned in this moment. Um, Oh, it's fat. Joel in this moment is fascinating to me. Like, is he a protector or is he just does not care? He's like a mercenary, like a mercenary. His, right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I uh, I think that in general, the storytelling, both of the video game and of the show, is like really subtle. Um, so there is that one scene where Marlene says, uh, we are in a war against the military dictatorship to restore freedom and democracy, end quote. That I was like, ooh, that's pretty clunky. Pretty clunky dialogue. Um, but the rest of the show's dialogue is like overall pretty pretty subtle, pretty solid, pretty plausible in my opinion. So um, anyway, so they agree. Uh, Joel gives Ellie back the knife. There's a lot of focus on knives this episode, right? Uh, Sarah kind of picks up Joel's knife early on in the episode. Uh, Ellie really wants her knife. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, if knives are going to play a bigger role in the show. Uh, they go and back. A, a to glass onion comes in at the very end of the mm -hmm. episode, and you realize mm -hmm. it's been a, a knives out story the whole time. Indeed. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> they go back to uh, the apartment and... Joel and Tess like lock Ellie inside the apartment while they debate what the plan's going to be. While she's in there, Ellie looks at this radio and this book and realizes there's a code. She figures it out that the radio is a, there's like a book of the Billboard 100. So the, I guess the idea is like you look up the song that plays in the book and then you can figure out which decade it's from. And she says, quote, 60 songs, they don't have anything new. It's a smuggling code. 60 songs, they don't have anything new. 70 songs, they got new stuff. What's 80s? And then Joel doesn't explain what 80s is. But later she figures out it means basically there's trouble. People are in trouble, right? Uh, I, I thought that was clever. Really, really cool little touch there. Uh, and I should point out that this, the episode ends with, I think it's an 80s song by Depeche Mode called Never Let Me Down Again. So. And. I love that. I love the idea of 80s music being scary. Like, well, we, scary. We, all know that the 80s, we all know that the 80s foretold the ending of humanity, like, in, in many <laughs> with ways. Joyous, with joyous music, though. Mm -hmm. You know, neon, bright color. You picture the 80s, and it's like, 
you know, jazzer size or whatever, like the late eighties, early nineties. And I love the idea, even Depeche mode coming on at the end. It's like, uh, Oh yeah. I love it. I, I love all that. Like it's not. Yeah. yeah. And it's a cool idea of like you broadcast a song because like no one will be able to tell as opposed to you radioing and bring the, bring the bombs to the, you know, <laughs> the outpost, please. You know, yeah. like it doesn't, it's, it's a cool, it's a cool idea. Like it's a cool code. That's like not easily decipherable. Um, I like that idea. So anyway, they begin to attempt to sneak out of the city, Joel, Ellie, and Tess. And actually, you know, there is this moment that Joel and Ellie have where they kind of like talk a little bit and you, you learn like what kind of life you learn a little bit about what kind of life Ellie's had, which is like a very small life. Like she hasn't really been outside very much and she's kind of been, had her life dictated to her for her for most of her existence. We learn a little bit about her background that she went to like a Fedra uh, training camp, right? Like from Marlene. Um, so it's, it's, you know, these nice little touches where we're learning a little bit more about Ellie during the course of the episode. I do think that most of Ellie's performance here is kind of like very belligerent, you know, very kind of snarky belligerent character. Um, and it does feel a little bit out of pace with the rest of the tone of the show so far, in my opinion. Um, I know I like my guess is there is like a more serious side to Ellie that we're going to find out, but like for most of this episode, she's kind of like cracking wise and almost an audience surrogate in some ways. Uh, and it, it did feel a little bit discordant to me. I don't know if you had that feeling Christian. Yeah, that didn't jump out at me. I mean, as you say okay. it, I, I can see her, hear her lines in my head and see those scenes in the show. But I also feel like she, I, I don't know if you have a teen or preteen. I mean, I do know, but I'll say, I don't know, dear listener, if you, I'll break mm -hmm. it broader, have a teen or preteen at home. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, snark is uh, like the Colorado River 20 years ago. It flows freely, my friends, uh, at that age. <laughs> <laughs> so you, like you thought it's very, it very true to life very very accurate yeah. she's been in a bad situation with no agency right she's mm -hmm. chained up being taken care of and so if she you find i think myself included at that age you find ways to impact the world and how you can and often mm -hmm. how you can is uh two fingers up you know one yeah. on each hand i think yeah. is yeah her attitude right now because she doesn't have anyone to trust or care about why should she you know yeah so it, it worked for me yeah, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. It's just the, the as you said earlier, the rest of the show is so dark um, yeah. that to have this one character kind of coming in and cracking wide, it, it's like it felt a little weird to me. But maybe I'll get more used to it as the show goes on. So well, I think they tried one line to explain that. I think it's a test line of uh, oh gosh, what did she say? These pre-outbreak kids, like mm, they don't yeah, know, yeah. like Ellie. Yeah, she, it was twenty years, right? So she hasn't. She doesn't know a thing. This is well, what she's I, raised. I, I think what she I think what she was saying is like children that were born after the outbreak have only known lawlessness. That's kind of my yeah. my sense is like um and there's there's a there's a scene early on where like uh the radio guy is like, Hey, there's like other stuff out there that's not just like cordyceps. There's like really dark human stuff, like people taking slaves and you know, Mad Max Fury Road style stuff going on out there. Yeah, you think um, the QZ's bad, baby? Yeah. You ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> exactly. That's what awaits you. So, anyway, 
uh, it's a fair point, Christian, that, that it's like maybe accurate, but totally just felt a little weird to me. Who, who knows? Maybe I'll get more used to it as, as the show goes on. Um, okay. So they try to escape from the city, but then they get caught by the same guard that Joel was selling pills to earlier. Whoa, coincidence. Um, so he starts Casting scanning. budget is all that was. They didn't have, they, they used their money dropping three real planes from the sky. So they had to, mm-hmm. who are we going to, oh, yeah. Chad, you're available again. Get <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guards says he wants to do this by the books. Like he's, he's not happy that Joel's there because he thinks that he Joel has put, put him in a bad position where he's like, oh, okay, I'm either going to have to report this, which means you're going to hang, or you're going to have to give me a bribe so big uh, that I'm going to have to, you know, to make me forget about this. So he's like, I'm going to do this by the book. So he starts scanning them. And before he can scan Ellie, uh, Ellie stabs him, right? Like right when he's about to scan her. Um, and Ellie starts saying like, hey, like I'm not infected. Like I've gotten bitten, but I'm not infected, you know? And Tess sees that the machine has shown red and chaos ensues. Joel has a flashback to when another uh, military slash law enforcement officer was pointing a gun at him and somebody that he was entrusted to care about. And he just goes wild on this guard and beats him to death um, with his bare hands. Brutal scene. Uh, Lots going on, like lots of stuff happening. You're finding out stuff about Ellie. You're finding about like the relationship between them. And, uh, and then obviously Joel, killing this guy who he was quasi friends with slash acquaintances with. What did you think of this as a conclusion for the episode, Christian? As I mean, the conclusion is they kind of walk away into the distance as you see like towers in Boston in disarray. But, um, but yeah, this is like kind of the climax, the emotional climax of this part of the episode. What'd you think of it? Uh, it, it packs a punch. You learn a whole bunch, right? Like you mentioned that drop of Ellie um, and so much of the storytelling that had happened before, paying off now the red light on the child now we have another red light on a child the poster showing how fast you would become infected at a from a bite on the arm you see that ellie has this bite on her arm and it's old and so like something is off right yeah, like she yeah. everything this show has told you means that she should be one of these things by now and she's not so that's super interesting and immediately raises the stakes for who she is and then seeing joel have that ptsd moment of you know, like a Sarah flashback. And throughout the show too, we, we see his watch over and over and over again as this touch point for him. Like it's broken, but he has it when they leave the QZ. He takes, of the things he takes on this journey, one of them is a broken watch that we last saw his daughter giving to him fixed, you know, like prior in this story. Mm-hmm. And so like that, that, that connection is there for this character. And then to see him you know, brutally attack and, as you mentioned, likely kill this this um, Fedra agent. As we just came out of a scene with Joel and Marlene agreeing to work together because their interests align, and now we see Joel do something so violent to someone whose interests also used to align with his. Mm-hmm. It's like keep your friends close, enemies closer. Like, who is Joel, and how trustworthy? Did Marlene make a terrible mistake here? Because, yeah. you know, if push comes to shove, Joel's a loose cannon. And here they go, just the three of them off into this this big bad world. And I, I think everybody's on eggshells a little bit. It, it's, um, it's a shocking end, I think, to who these 
this episode setting up who these characters might be. I don't yeah. know if I leave thinking Joel's a good guy. <laughs> like I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's like she she kind of Marlene alludes earlier to the fact that she's like, I know what you guys are capable of, and it's like, what is she? What is she talking about there? What is what is Joel capable of? Because we saw Joel beat Miss uh, Connie's mom down with a wrench earlier in the episode. So it's like, what has Joel done in the last twenty years? You know, to survive basically is is an open question. I think there's um, a veteran sticker on the back of the truck yeah, in the yes. pre outbreak also. So it's, you know, that this guy knows how to handle the weapons, like that shortcut of like, this is why they're trained. Um, it's not me. <laughs> Someone giving me a rifle and me immediately shooting myself in the foot. Uh, Joel knows what he's doing. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this episode? I thought it was a very strong pilot episode. I, I liked it. I'm interested to see what happens next. Uh, I purposely have not watched the next episode because I'm waiting to record this, but I'm probably right afterwards. I'm going to go watch it because uh, I'm liking the world that it's creating. I'm liking this journey that these characters are having. I'm liking the cast so far. Overall, I'm enjoying the show. Any other thoughts, Christian? No, I agree. Likewise, the only other thought would be, again, it reinforces um, anyone can die. You know, that Fedra agent dies. Robert dies. Robert seems like this major underworld gangster. And not only does Robert die, he dies unceremoniously off screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Marlene sees him. It's like idiot, you know? And so, you know, here we go uh, into the world, but a very effective pilot. And I'm super curious what folks that don't have uh, familiarity with the franchise, how they've reacted to it. But I think it, you know, the curse of the video game adaptation or whatever, which I think has already largely been broken. But no part about this screamed, oh, video game show. This felt like prestige TV through and through. And, you know, for better or worse, <laughs> the show has expectations of its own to live up to now. Yeah, 100%. In the bonus episode that we'll release this week, uh, and also for like specifically for DecodingTV.com members, I want to talk with you about some of the changes that the show has made compared to the video game. But I'm just going to mention one. And I, I firm, I don't believe this is uh, like, I'm... I'm fairly confident this is not any spoiler at all but like one of the changes is in the video game so this is just a preview of that talk so in the video game um there joel is not like dealing drugs to some fedra guard as far as i can recall and so then the encounter where he beats the guard to death at the end of this episode happens pretty similarly like to how it happens in the show but in the show like in the video game it's a completely random guard person like you've never met that person before and i really like that as a change because it's like oh this is a guy that joel knew like joel beat to death a guy he knew you know like um it wasn't just like he beat to death a random faceless stranger he beat to death someone he had like actually what seems to be like a many months if not years long relationship with um and so it really does do a good job of like an even better job than the game of landing what joel is capable of doing at this stage yeah, so, I agree. So one of many changes that we'll discuss in, in the next episode, um, uh, the bonus episode, but uh, but I, I just uh, appreciated that narratively. So anyway, that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Decoding TV. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we want to hear what you thought about the pilot of The Last of Us. Be sure to email us at decodingtv at gmail.com. You can also find us on YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, at Decoding TV. Christian Spicer, where can people find more of your work on the internet this week? 
easiest place is over at my website, christianspicer.com. There's a micro blog there as well as a link to my newsletter, which you can also find directly at tinyletter.com slash christianspicer, where I mostly write long form about video games. Speaking of which, I host a video game podcast with Mr. Jeff Kanata each week called DLC, um, where we talk about the games we're playing, the big news in the space, and we do it in a friendly and positive way, in a way that is clean. So you can listen to it with your kids in the car or in the building as well. So check that out if you haven't yet. All right. Speaking of newsletters, I also have one at decodingeverything.com. Check that one out as well. Um, It's free. All right. Until next week, uh, we'll see you later for another episode of Decoding TV recapping The Last of Us. Goodbye.